welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, I'm honored to welcome Ruby Bridges to the podcast. Ruby is a civil rights icon who, at the age of six, integrated the all-white William Franz Elementary School in New Orleans. With that, she walked into the pages of history. To this day, Ruby has continued the struggle for civil rights. In 1995, she created the Ruby Bridges Foundation, which is dedicated to fostering respect and equality for people of all races and backgrounds. She talks with children everywhere about the disease of racism, which she says is a grown-up disease of the heart. Ruby is a hero to me and countless others, and I'm delighted to welcome her to Scholastic Reads. But first, I want to warn you that Ruby uses some of the hurtful language that children said to her when she was in first grade. We felt it was important not to cut out what she says in order to help all of our listeners understand the harm that racism causes. Hi, Ruby. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. We're at a momentous time in American history. You are no stranger to momentous times and turning points in our country. Could you bring us back to November 1960, when you were six years old and about to enter a new school? What did your parents tell you would happen, and what actually did happen? The truth is, is that my parents really didn't say anything to me about uh, what was going on at the time. And uh, the only thing that I remember them saying was that, Ruby, you're going to go to a new school and that I needed to behave. But what was happening at the time is that Brown versus the board had happened in 1954, which was the year that I was born. And yet it hadn't been implemented in Louisiana uh, until 1960, which is the year that I was integrating the school. So um, the organization that was spearheading that was the NAACP, and they came uh, into our neighborhoods, and they were doing door-to-door searches, asking people if they had six-year-old kids, would they be willing to send their kids to the first integrated schools in the city? And my parents, being sharecroppers, you know, education was a a luxury for them. If it was time for them to get the crops in, then they were not allowed to go to school. And so hearing this, my mother felt like, well, absolutely, I, I want my children to have the opportunity that I didn't have. And so they argued about it a little bit. My father was against it. And I do believe that that was because my father had fought in the Korean War and had come back home. And he said, even on the battlefield, you know, you were just another colored soldier, even though you could be fighting next to a white soldier that at the end of the day, they were not allowed to eat in the same mess hall or go back to the same barracks. And so I think that influenced him quite a bit. And he felt like, why subject his child 
to what could happen uh, by sending me into this integrated school. And I always say, but, you know, my mother prevailed and there I was headed to a brand new school. I think they didn't try to explain anything to me because it's, you know, we all know how difficult it is to explain racism to a child. So I wasn't aware of any of that. I had already gone to kindergarten at an all black school where I, everybody looked exactly like me, my teacher and all of the other kids and all of the other teachers and principal. So I was accustomed to school. I knew pretty much what to expect, I thought. But um, what happened is that there were nearly 150 families that agreed to send their six-year-old to these integrated schools. But the opposition set up a test so that each one of those kids would be tested to see if they were smart enough to attend these white schools. When the truth of the matter is, is that the test was set up to eliminate kids. So out of that 150 kids that had volunteered, only six of them passed. And um, there were only two schools chosen. Uh, The kids were divided up. Three kids were assigned to one school and three to the other. I was lucky enough to pass the test. And so I was assigned to one of those schools. But um, when the first day came, two kids had uh, or their parents had decided not to send their children. And those two kids were assigned to go to school with me. And that left me to attend William France Elementary alone that first day. Wow. And do you remember that first day? (laughs) I definitely do. Um, it was, you know, as I said, having gone to school before, I thought that I knew what to expect. But I remember these four very tall white men uh, driving up to my parents' door and knocking on the door and saying, we're here to export you and your daughter to school today. And there I was looking at them, you know, um, I was all dressed and ready to go to school and thinking to myself, who are they? And heard them say, we are U.S. Marshals, and we've been sent by the President of the United States to escort you and your daughter to school today. So that indeed did not happen on my way to kindergarten. So that was the first um, sign that this was going to be different. So um, I remember getting into the car with them and starting this very short drive because my new school was actually much closer to my house than the all black school I had attended the year before. And that was because this new school, this white school was actually my neighborhood school. But because the law had not been changed, I was not able to attend until that day. And so there I was in the car, um, two marshals in the front and two in the back. And my mom and I sat between them in the back seat. And we started this very short drive. You know, living in New Orleans and being accustomed to Mardi Gras was something that, you know, we as kids look forward to. And a huge celebration. And there's lots of people out in the middle of the streets and everything is closed. And there's police officers everywhere and people are throwing things. And it's just a great time in the city. So there I was in the car. And when we turned the corner, 
That's exactly what I saw. I saw lots of people line the streets on both sides of the streets. There were barricades and they were standing behind the barricades and there were police officers keeping them back. The police officers were on horseback and they were, people were screaming. Uh, They were raising their hands. Some of them were holding signs up, but it looked exactly like Mardi Gras because that's what happens at Mardi Gras. So the truth is, is that I really thought that we had stumbled into a Mardi Gras parade that day. And, uh, you know, I always say that, you know, that was the innocence of a child. And it's important to point out that I am more than sure any six-year-old child that you do not explain to what's happening, playing out before them, they may have thought the same thing, Uh, which is probably what most of our kids today at that age, watching what's unfolding today, are trying to figure out what is happening. What is this? And um, for me, as I said, living in New Orleans, it was very easy for me to come to the conclusion that I'm on my way to school and it's Mardi Gras today. So I remember arriving in front of the school and the car door opening and uh, the marshals were explaining to my mom how we should walk when we got out of the car. And I remember them saying, you know, we marshals in the front will get out first and then the marshals in the back will get out. We will surround you. We want you to walk straight ahead and don't look back. And they rushed us inside of the building. That's what that whole scene looked like that day. The school was the school was so different that and the fact that I had I had to take this test and pass this test that no kids could pass. Only six of them, I thought that that test meant that I was so smart, I I could go straight from kindergarten to college. And uh, looking at the building, it was so different from the school that I had attended the year before. It was very easy for me to assume that it's such a big building. It's all brick and it's so beautiful and much newer, better well-kept, it really appeared that this was college. And so I was not afraid. It was just Mardi Gras. And I just thought everybody came out to see this little six-year-old go to college. So (laughs) the innocence of a child, that's really what protected me that day. And what would you say to six-year-olds today about what we are seeing all around us, in our homes, in this country? Well, you know, it was um, very important to me when we published my story to explain what I was seeing and, and to go back and do research and pull that footage uh, that was going on at the time and newspaper articles that would explain what was really going on. And to kind of put that together like a collage, so to speak, 
what I thought I was seeing as an innocent six-year-old and what we were actually seeing through the photographs and what the media, the newspaper articles, magazines, what they were saying was really happening. And we put those three elements together to tell my story. And I thought that that was the best way to have my voice tell you what I was seeing through my eyes, which for me was a a look at racism through the eyes of a six-year-old, what the pictures were actually capturing at the moment so that we can compare that to what I thought I saw. And then the actual newspaper articles so that every grown-up would see that this is what your child is probably seeing. And I do believe that for 25 years, I've been trying to do exactly that, explain to them what I was seeing and showing them what was actually happening and then answering their questions because our children don't understand racism. None of our kids come into the world knowing anything about disliking someone because of the color of their skin. You know, we are given such an amazing gift by the universe. For me, it's by my creator. And that gift is that you get to come into the world with a clean heart, with a fresh start in life, each and every one of us. And yet somewhere in the midst of your growing up, that is taken away from you. And so I have always tried to explain to kids that racism really has no place in the minds and hearts of our children. And I've always thought that if we are going to get past our racial differences, it will come from the kids. And so what I would say to kids today is that's exactly what we see playing out before us. It may have taken 60 years for this to resurrect all over again. But the young people have taken to the streets. And because I do believe that it's a new generation. What we did back in 1960 moved us to this point. And it's taken 60 years until this new generation is ready. But what I believe is happening is that what we did is that we allowed our children to come together. Even if the law forced them to. Kids were able to come together to get to know each other, to sit next to each other in schools, to develop those friendships. Over the 60-year period of time, they've had an opportunity to play sports together you know, to enjoy music, movies. They've been brought together by what we did 60 years ago. And in that 60-year period of time, what I believe has happened is that some of them have gotten to know it doesn't matter what we look like. That what they've been told all those years was actually wrong. This person is a good person. You know, and they've brought those questions home. And they've asked their parents about it. And so I believe that what we see playing out before us today is a result of all of that. They know better. And so now they've taken to the streets all across the world 
because it is their time in history. I, I have to think your parents are smiling down on you, Ruby. <laughs> Just, they, they did it. They did it. And, you know, when, I, when we say they, there's so many people, so many people that paved that way, that put that work in. You know, it's been 60 years of work and still lots of sacrifices, lots of lives lost. That's what, that's what we see. You know, the way I look at things today is that this young man that lost his life a week or so ago by the hands of police officers was just the straw that broke the backs of all of those people that paved that way. And it was just the perfect storm. And what we see is the waves and waves of young people all across the world. You know, racism is a form of hate. And I've always said that it's, it's about good and evil. What we are dealing with is matters of the heart. Racism is a heart problem. And it's very, very hard to change people's hearts. And it's taken 60 years for that to happen. It has. I would love for you to read from Through My Eyes, which is the memoir you talked about here. You published that in 1999. If you could give us a little insight into all of that work. Well, there's a, a, a page in the book that resonates with me. So I'll read this page. The show opened on time, sound of sirens, motorcycle cops, then two big black cars filled with big men in bold felt hats pulled up in front of the school. The crowd seemed to hold its breath. Four big marshals got out of each car and from somewhere in the automobiles, they extracted the littlest, tiniest Negro girl you ever saw. Dressed in shiny, starched white dress with new white shoes on her feet, so little they were almost round. Her face and little legs were very black in contrast against the white dress. The big marshals stood her on the curb and a jangle of jeering shrieks went up from behind the barricades. The little girl did not look at the howling crowd, but from the sides, the whites of her eyes showed like those of a frightened fawn. The men turned her around like a little doll, and then the strange procession moved up the broad walk toward the school. And the child was even more a mite because the men were so big. Then the girl made a curious hop, and I think I know what that was. I think. In her whole life, 
she had not gone 10 steps without skipping. But now in the middle of her first skip, the weight wore her down and her little round feet took measured, reluctant steps between those tall guards. And slowly they climbed the steps and entered the school and entered into the history books. So beautiful. It just has such resonance for the the devastation that racism causes a child. And I don't even know what to say. Well, you know, it is unfortunate. But, you know, I guess was fate would have it. Everything happens for a reason, and it had to play out this way. Again, that gift that we're given when we come into the world allowed us for 60 years to take our children and to use them as a tool to keep racism alive. And early, early on, I understood that because I was a six-year-old innocent, still holding on to that gift. And yet I remember the day that it was taken away. And it wasn't the day that I'd gone up those stairs because I was still very innocent, thinking that it was Mardi Gras. It wasn't until months and months later when a little boy said that I can't play with you. My mom said not to play with you because you're a nigger. And I remember it felt like that weight lifted off my shoulders because now I understood what it was all about. I understood that it wasn't Mardi Gras, that it wasn't college, that no one was there because it was because of the color of my skin. And for 60 years, we have been using our kids to keep racism alive. And so my slogan for my foundation is that racism is a grown-up disease. And we have to stop using our kids to spread it. That's remarkable. And people may not realize you walked into this school, but you were in a classroom. You were the only child for a year with Mrs. Barbara Henry as your teacher. Yes, Mrs. Henry was... um, the only teacher that would teach me, teachers actually quit their jobs because they refused to teach black kids. And Mrs. Henry, uh, whose husband was in the military and had been stationed in Mississippi, uh, was looking for a job. And she was the woman that came from Boston to teach me. And it was just her and I in that classroom for a whole year. I always say that Mrs. Henry, I mean, I didn't know what to expect from her. She looked exactly like the mob outside. But it was very evident very soon that she was not like them. She looked like them. But Mrs. Henry showed me her heart. And she was there for me. She was an amazing teacher. And I knew she cared about me. And her and I never missed a day that whole year. I think we realized that we had to be there for each other. 
And I soon learned the lesson I believe I entered into that building to learn and into that classroom. And that is, you can't look at a person and judge them. You have to get to know them. And Mrs. Henry showed me her heart and allowed me an opportunity to get to know her. And so the real lesson that I took away in first grade in that classroom is that it's the same lesson Dr. King tried to teach us. You can't judge a person by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That lesson has shaped me into the person that I am today. And I'm extremely proud of what we see today. Definitely there's been some opposition and protesting that it's gone in a way that it shouldn't have. But very soon that was corrected. And I think what we see for the most part is peaceful protesting, which is what I really want to encourage because, again, that was something that Dr. King stood for, nonviolent protesting. That's what moved us forward 60 years back in 1960. And there were so many people from all backgrounds, different races, that came together and made all of those sacrifices. And so really, it's all of our legacies. We should be doing this not just for the person that lost their life in the last week, but for so many people before us that lost their lives, sacrifices they made. and. If we go back in history and go back in time, you'll be able to see those faces, bloody and bruised and beaten, those people who made those sacrifices. And so for us to live in the America that it was supposedly founded on, all of us have a responsibility to move us forward. And I think that's what we see in the streets today. And so far, what's amazing is that the whole world is watching. When we think about technology and what it's allowed us to do, that's why it's a perfect storm. Because we needed this technology to help us. And so now you can see that it's really moved across the world. Racism is not just something that's affected the United States. I honestly believe that we have a perfect opportunity now to really start a conversation about world peace. How do we begin? What do we say to young people who are six years old and seven years old and 15 and 25 What is the message to them that you want to convey? You know, for 25 years, I've been delivering this message. Since we published that first book in 1995, I've been delivering this message for 25 years. And the truth of the matter is, is that our kids get it. The little ones, they get it. They understand when someone doesn't want to play with them. They understand when a friend decides not to invite them to the party and they haven't really done anything to deserve being treated that way. I think kids see this little six-year-old girl that we've written about and in the Norman Rockwell painting and they, it resonates with them. 
the pain and the anguish of not being treated fairly. They get it. And so for me, I've seen hope in the eyes of our children for 25 years. Hope that most people haven't seen. But I get a chance to see it every day in every school across this country, sometimes two schools a day. I see it. And I've always been hopeful because I have done my best to pick it apart and explain racism through the eyes of a six-year-old to other six-year-olds. And they get it. That is such a moral lesson, clearly, profoundly. But also you spoke about technology, and I wondered if you see, as you've visited schools over the years, children just becoming more aware of injustice and how wrong it is, whether they're in a school where everyone looks like them or not, that they they are more knowledgeable and aware of what's going on around them and want to change that? I think so. I think kids, they are aware of that because of technology. But, you know, we as adults have a responsibility about that. We need to provide that technology. We need to provide that material so they can see for themselves. You know, in my presentations, I've always done that just through a slide presentation, going back. It's not just enough for me to stand up and talk to them and tell them my story. I need to prove it to them. And technology allows us an opportunity to do that. That's our responsibility to put the truth there for them so they don't have to search so hard for it or believe what one person says. That's what we as adults should be doing. And I've said that for many, many years. We are responsible for feeding the minds of our children. And I've always said that for a very, very long time, and still right now, in some cases today, history is not being taught and not being told the way that it really happened. You can't tell the story of history just by leaving out certain things that you don't want them to know or see. You can't do that. You can't tell part of the truth. You have to tell the whole truth. You have to show it to them so that they do understand. And that is our responsibility, especially your responsibility as educators. Whomever's writing the books and putting them together, who's developing the content for schools to use, it is up to us to do that. And I have to say that throughout this 60-year period of time, we've fallen short of doing that. So I just think there's so many, so many opportunities to change now, to do better, and to do better by our young people. And it's just up to us. We all have a responsibility in this, grown-ups and young adults and our babies. I, I could not agree more. We have fallen appallingly short. I think of you as the model, the Ruby Bridges Foundation, as the model for people who are starting on this journey or midway through it or in classrooms with children. Could you give 
some advice about how you have approached, you just stated it so eloquently, but I wondered if we could just pull it together in the Ruby Bridges Foundation and your approach to education as a whole. Well, to be honest with you, I mean, again, I'm only one person. Um, I started the foundation just to be able to have a vehicle for the royalties from my book to go into. And it wasn't that I was savvy enough about nonprofits and how they really work, but it was a place to put those funds because I started out just wanting to develop an after-school program that would allow kids to come together to do fun things. But it was the arts and it was my way of bringing them together in the hopes that they would get to know one another. And it grew, but I've been disappointed in myself because I haven't gotten the support behind the foundation to be able to do the work that I've just described to you. And that's what I mean about we've fallen short. It's not just me, but again, just developing vehicles and opportunities and information to pass on to the next generation in the hopes that they will grab hold of it and and move forward. I'm in the midst of relaunching the foundation because it has been 25 years and what we hope to develop now is summer camps because our hands are tied when it comes to schools, building schools and starting schools to teach what you really want to teach. You know, there's certain guidelines that we all have to abide by. So I think developing a summer camp or many summer camps would allow me an opportunity to bring kids together, very diverse groups of kids and teaching those values and, and history the way that it actually happened. Uh, that's what my hopes for the organization is moving forward. As I said, I, I believe that all of us have a responsibility. Organizations, they have a responsibility. Because at the end of the day, it's going to affect each and every one of us. I mean, look how what's happening today has affected all of us, no matter what race you are. And so we all have to come together to, to do our share. I can't ignore that metaphor you used earlier, our hands are tied. And once again, it seems, I mean, what a, a horrible metaphor for all of the violence that the Black community in particular has endured physically, emotionally, mentally. But now to say it's almost like we have to do a workaround in the education system, we still can't do this, confront this head on. Exactly. It's going to take a major shift. And I think that's happening. I see that that's happening. I mean, I, I noticed people within the NFL that sort of now taking notice and understanding what the kneeling of the knee was really about. But you have to ask yourself, why didn't you understand that before? You know, there's some very powerful organizations who could help to move our country 
forward in the direction that it needs to go in. You know, organizations and companies and even new generations of organizations, young people, they have far more resources today than they had back in 1960 when Dr. King was out there marching and marching without any resources himself. People came together. There are lots of celebrities and actors. There's photographs of them that came together to help and support him. So we all have a responsibility. And we all have to see the value in that. Not just for ourselves, but for the next generation. I'm a mom. I'm a grandmom. I'm concerned about our own kids. I hear people who say today, you know, I don't want to bring a child into this world the way it is today. It's really unfortunate. And so we are in a position today, a much, much better, stronger position today to do better than Dr. King and all those people before us did. They did their share. And it's up to us to do ours. It's definitely a collective effort. It's going to require everyone, not just one person speaking, but your voice has been one of clarity for 60 years, Ruby. And on behalf of Scholastic and everyone, everyone I know who's committed to this battle, I just thank you so very much. And I'm sorry it has taken this, but, but your work stands as a testament to, to what is possible, the best in humanity. Yes. And, you know, we have to be hopeful. We, we, we really should feel good about where we are today because the sheets have been pulled off totally now. And we can see it for what it is. And we see our young people really leading us. We should, should feel bad about it, but we also have so much to feel good about because they're setting an example for us. And now what we need to do is to get behind them. Yes. We haven't silenced them or distorted them the way we have previous generations. Exactly. Ruby, uh, if our listeners are looking for more information, and I'm sure they will be, could you tell us about your online presence? So I'm starting my own podcast. And uh, for more details on that, you should uh, go to rubybridges.com. And please, I'd love my young people to follow me on Instagram at rubybridgesofficial. Thank you, Ruby. I just want to say thank you. It's been a great conversation. And um, in the words of our past President Obama, let's get to work. Yes, let's get to work. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much again to Ruby Bridges for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the Ruby Bridges Foundation, And for a catalog of diverse books for readers of all ages, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrazula, sound engineer Colin Paulette, 
and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.